Okay, so we are continuing in our study of Luke. We're getting very, very close to the end of the study. And what we're looking at today is Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 38. We just, we started this last week, and I spoke about ignorance, about the folks who were, um, had crucified Jesus, were involved in all of that, and, uh, how they were, how they did it in, in ignorance. They knew what they were doing, but uh, in spite of everything that was telling them differently, uh, they went ahead and proceeded with his crucifixion. So uh, I said that I divided this small section up in three: the scenario, the sayings, and the superscription. And uh, we're still going to continue to consider the scenario. I have a. One other thing that I'd like to talk about in regards to the scenario, and uh, that is uh, what Matthew 25:56 says. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So what I want to talk about for a little bit is uh, fulfilled prophecy in regards to the crucifixion of Jesus. So uh, before we get started, let's go ahead and ask God's blessing. And then uh, we'll get right into the study. I apologize. Uh, So dry. Lord God in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and this is your word. And this is about your son, our Savior. And Father, you know... My goodness, I can, I can study until the cows come home. Uh, I can prepare and I can rewrite and I can edit. But all that really doesn't matter a whole lot unless, Father, you bless it. And that's what I ask, Father. I ask, Lord, that you would just simply bless this time as we gather around this small passage. We look into it, Father, and we see what you would have us to see. And what I pray, Father, I pray that it would bolster our faith... And also increase our love in regards to your son, Jesus Christ. And there's just no way that we can fathom what it was that he did for us. But we have all of eternity to rejoice. And we thank you so much, Lord, for your love for us. And we pray now, Father, that you would bless this time around your word. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage again, 33 through 38. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be, the Christ, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Uh, This is the king of the Jews. So I want to finish off with a scenario. And what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about uh, the scripture being fulfilled in regards to the crucifixion of Christ. As with all things pertaining to the life of Jesus... 
every aspect of his life, uh, including his death, burial, and resurrection, from his birth, everything, uh, all of that was in fulfillment of scriptures. His entire life was in fulfillment of scriptures. Um, And it's the literal fulfillment of prophecy in the word of God uh, that gives us the the, the seal of divine origin, okay? Uh, When Moses was talking to the children of Israel, and the children of Israel had a question in Deuteronomy 18, 21 through uh, 22, they had a question, you know, how do we know a man is speaking to us from God? How do we know what a prophet is speaking to us? And Moses told the people, he says, If thou say in thine heart, how shall we know that the word which the Lord hath not spoken? He said, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the the thing follow not nor come to pass that is the thing which the Lord had not spoken but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously thou shalt not be afraid of him so in other words if it doesn't come to pass then it's not from God pretty simple right if it doesn't come to pass and it's not from God and this is the remarkable thing about Jesus' life everything that was written about him was fulfilled Everything, absolutely everything that was written about him was fulfilled. Uh, A fellow by the name of A.T. Pearson wrote a book, God's Living Oracles. And he said that there were over 300 predictions regarding Jesus Christ the Messiah found in the Old Testament. Uh, Some folks believe there's uh, 350, some folks believe there's more, but there's a a bunch of scriptures, over 300 scriptures that speak of Jesus that range from his birth to his death to his resurrection, and uh, just, just full of predictions, prophecies concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came the first time. The fancy word is advent, his first advent, okay, his first time he came. Uh, even Jesus himself, after his resurrection, you remember the the two disciples on the on the road to Emmaus, you know, and they were talking about what was going on, and Jesus saddled up along beside them, and he asked them what they were talking about, and he said, "Well, this man Jesus, he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah." Luke twenty four twenty six through twenty seven. This is Jesus. He says, "Ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into His glory?" And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So they got a little Bible study on the way to Emmaus as Jesus opened up the Word of God to them in regards to Himself. Now this number here is a calculation that a man much smarter than I am put together. And uh, he took these 300 plus prophetic statements concerning Jesus and he determined that for that to be fulfilled in one man in a particular time in history, as it did in Jesus Christ, the probabilities of that would be one to 84 to the hundredth power. Now, I had no idea what that looked like, so I googled what does one to the 84th to the 100 power looks like, and this is what they gave me. Right? You wouldn't want to buy a lottery ticket on those odds, because <laughs> there's just no way in the world, right? 
But that's the odds for something like that, for, for all the prophecies concerning Jesus being fulfilled. Another fellow by the name of Peter Stoner, who is a mathematician, a professor of mathematics, he um, considered just the prophecies dealing with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And he, so he considered just eight of those prophecies. I think there's 39 of them. I'm not really sure. I think it is 39. But anyway, he took those just eight prophecies and he put them, you know, he calculated and he said it would be 1 to 10 to the 17th power or 1 in... Okay, 100 followed by 17 zeros. Then he took another 8. So he said, okay, let's sit 16. Then that means it's 1 in 10 to the 45th power, or 1 in 1 followed by 45 zeros. Obviously. Astronomical. Astronomical that it would occur in a person's life that everything that was said about that person in the Old Testament would come to pass. I read a book years and years ago when I was a first, when I brand new believer. I may have told you this. And I was trying to read everything I could because, you know, I just got saved. I just wanted to know everything I could about it, about the Lord. So I read this book and this, I'm going to call him an idiot. This ignorant man, very smart, but very ignorant man, claimed that Jesus manipulated and fixed everything so that it would appear as if he fulfilled all these prophecies. That takes more faith than believing what the Bible says. It really does if you stop and think about it. How could one man have control over all of that and try to manipulate all it? It's just impossible. Believe what the Bible says because it's true. Now, I went, oh, this is where I got the number 39. I went to the Gospels and I tried to count every prophecy in the last 24 hours of Jesus, and I counted 39 prophecies. Now, there's probably more, but I counted 39 prophecies. Now, Mr. Stoner took just 16. Right? And it was one to one and followed by 45 zeros. What's the number if you t- take all 39 into consideration? Again, it's, it's astronomical. Astronomical. And so Professor Stoner, this mathematics professor, he made this comment. He says, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's a good statement. That's a good statement. Everything that was said about Jesus was fulfilled. Was fulfilled. And just the the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, those 39 plus prophecies... There's no way he could have manipulated it. There's no way in the world he could have put all that together. No. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the one that was predicted in the Old Testament. 
All of it was fulfilled. Now, let me ask you this question. If all of those 300 plus prophecies were fulfilled in regards to his first coming, what does that say about all the prophecies regarding his second coming? You think we can believe that those are going to come to pass too? Yeah, you bet. You bet. If everything that was prophesied of him in his first coming came to pass, then everything that it says about his coming again will come to pass. Will come to pass. Now, let's take a look at some of these fulfilled prophecies. Right here in verse 33 of Luke 23. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now the prophet Isaiah was given this prediction back in 740 B.C. in the 8th century, 800 years before Jesus showed up. And this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Right? Crucified in between the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left. Just like Isaiah had predicted 740 B.C., eight centuries before Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that after Jesus' prayer to forgive them, it says that the the soldiers stripped Jesus naked and then they gambled for his clothes. Luke 23, 34, as he hung on the cross... Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they're not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. That means they gambled. Okay, they threw dice to get his clothes, to divvy up his clothes. Again, in fulfillment of scripture, Psalms 22, uh, verse 17. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare at me. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's over a thousand years before Jesus shows up. A thousand years. Now consider the scene. Here we have Jesus. He is stripped of his honor by his false accusers. His followers have abandoned him. He's hanging on the cross. His very life's blood is pouring out onto the ground. He's in the midst of the stranglehold of death because that's what crucifixion really is. It's suffocation. Because uh, their lungs fill up with fluid. Because as they're hanging there, it constricts the diaphragm and you can't breathe. So what what they have to do in order to catch a breath, they have to push up off of those nail-pierced feet in order to suck in breath. But after a while, your lungs begin to fill up. Water encases around your heart. And so you die of heart failure and suffocation. It's a terrible, terrible death, agonizing death. And so here he is, and you know, you see these pictures of Jesus, and he usually has something wrapped around his waist. No. He was stark naked. Stripped bare for everyone to see. 
And while he's up there suffering, these guys are (laughs) gambling for his clothes. Gambling for his clothes. The really, if you stop and think about it, Jesus really didn't own anything, did he? Even his clothes were taken away from him. Second Corinthians eight nine. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He was stripped of absolutely everything. And he did that for me and you. Luke 23, 35 says, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. So while Jesus was hanging up there naked and agonizing and, and bleeding... The people paraded in front of him, like people do on the highway when there's an accident, right? They they paraded in front of him. Uh, Some of them, I believe, were sympathetic, but there were those who were glad he was up there on the cross. And they were making fun of him. They hated Jesus. And so they were hurling insults and scorn toward Jesus. Not only was the people around hearing these insults, who else was hearing the insults? Jesus was. Yeah, the mom was hearing it, but Jesus was hearing this too. I don't know if you guys have ever been put in a situation where, you know, you're in an absolute place of utter humility and you're not getting sympathy from anybody. (laughs) The only thing you're getting is jeering and ridicule I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that but it's that's not a good place to be not a good place to be Psalms 22:12 says many bulls have compassed me strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round they gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion we know who the roaring lion is but who in the world are these bulls of Bashan Well, the prophet Amos speaks of these bulls of Bashan. And according to Amos 4.1, these bulls of Bashan are the leadership of Israel. Amos 4.1, hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. These bulls of Bashan in Amos' day were the leadership and they were guilty of abusing the poor people bringing upon the poor people great oppression these bulls of Bashan in regards to Jesus Christ as Caiaphas and Annas and the religious leaders and rulers and elders that got Jesus um, crucified and like these roaring bulls they mocked him He saved others, let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. Even their blasphemous derision is recorded. A thousand years before they even uttered it out of their mouth, it's recorded. Psalms 22.8, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him. A thousand years before these men utter these words. 
How is Jesus going to manipulate these men to say these things? He can't if it was just a man hanging on that cross, right? Just like that guy said in that book, which I filed away in the trash can. And then you have, along with the bulls of Bashan, you have um, the Roman soldiers. They also got caught up in the spirit of scorn. Verse 36 of Luke 23, verse 36 and 37. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. I mean, in the Romans' mind, I mean, what kind of king is this? This is no king in their eyes. I mean, would a king allow them to crucify him to a cross? I mean, he was helpless. He was a joke to these guys. Again, in fulfillment of scripture, Psalms twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Who drove the nails in Jesus' hands and feet? It was the Roman soldiers. It was the Roman soldiers. And that, and, the, and, and dog or dogs, that's a derisive term that the Jews use against all Gentiles. They considered all Gentiles no better than dogs. No better than dogs. So, they talk about dogs plural here in verse 16. In verse 20, it talks about a dog. So I don't think it's hard to infer that. The dogs refer to the Roman soldiers and the dog may refer to Pontius Pilate. The man who had the authority to release Jesus, but he failed to do so. So, these soldiers crucified Jesus. He was nothing to them. They're the ones that drove the nails into his hands. But notice also, Psalms 22 mentions the assembly of the wicked. In Psalms 22:16. Now, who is this assembly of, of the wicked? Well, we already covered the leadership. We already covered the Roman soldiers. Who in the world of the assembly of the of the wicked that are also gathered there along with the leadership? Bron, any guess on that? Who the assembly of the wicked might be? Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on spot, but I figured if anybody would know, you would know. What does Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tell us about? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Do you think that the devil and his cronies were right there? Unseen, yeah, unseen. But they were there. They were there. They believed that they had won a victory in the death of Jesus. Don't you think for a minute that they weren't gloating? I don't think. I'm pretty sure they were gloating. I'm pretty sure they were there thinking that they had won a significant victory in bringing about Jesus' death. Luke 23:36 and the soldiers also mocked him coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying if thou be the king of the Jews save thyself 
Again, no detail is left unfulfilled concerning the Old Testament prophecies, even in the matter of offering vinegar for Jesus to drink. Psalm 69.20 says, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. They gave me vinegar to drink. The word gall speaks of venom, uh, or something bitter or poisonous. How bitter were the words cast at Jesus that day? Poisonous words. And the vinegar. You wouldn't think about drinking vinegar, would you? Well, it's soured soured wine. It's soured wine um, mixed with water, and it aids in quenching the thirst. This is what the Romans would drink to quench their... Kind of like what we would do with lemonade. Right? You know, you drink lemonade. I don't know about you guys, but a Coke doesn't quench my thirst when I'm really thirsty. Water, lemonade does. And it's kind of interesting because a dry mouth is a sign of dehydration. And back in 1960, Japan did a, did a study and they discovered that sour things help with thirst because it promotes salivation. It gets the juices going in your mouth. But they were offering this vinegar to Jesus just like it was prophesied a thousand years before a thousand years before they actually did it. Later in Luke 23 verse 49 we read uh, where Jesus is coming to the end. He's ready to give up the ghost. It says here in verse 49 of Luke 23 and all his acquaintance And the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. Psalm 38, 10 through 11 says, My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it is also gone from me. What a picture of someone suffering crucifixion. Heart panting, the strength not able to push up to catch breath and the light of the eyes I went to a hospital one time to be with a a woman and I watched her pass away and no kidding it's like it's like the light just went out of the eyes it just and then it was gone and it was gone. But then verse 11 of 38, Psalm 38 says, My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Just like Luke recorded it. And then finally, when the Lord did expire, in Luke 23, 46, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Again, Psalms 31.5, Into thy hand I commit my spirit that has redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So, the literal fulfillment of prophecy in the word of God is the seal of its divine origin. 
did God, did Jesus put all this together? Did Jesus plan all this out? Did Jesus manipulate this as just a mere man? No. No, this was in fulfillment of scripture to prove that, yeah, this was indeed the Son of God. I only covered the prophecies here in Luke. I didn't cover the other prophecies in Matthew and Mark and John. You know, when I began speaking about this, when I first started this, I was talking about the ignorance of these who were involved with the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, for the most part, they understood what they were doing. They knew they were putting to death an innocent man. But they went ahead and did it anyway in their ignorance. Not so much ignorance because they weren't right in the head. They, were, they weren't right in the heart. It was an attitude of heart that was the ignorance that these men were operating from. You know, one of my, I gave a story about the man that I witnessed to. I'm going to give you another workplace story. <laughs> uh, I probably have shared this with you before. One of my responsibilities when I worked at the pharmaceutical co- company was uh, to assist the engineers and the quality assurance folks. Whenever we got a new piece of equipment in, uh, part of my job was to help in the validation process. And that validation process was to make sure the machine did what it what it was purchased for, and also to establish operating parameters with the machine for the different products that we would run, you know, temperatures, speeds, so forth and so on. And the engineers that I worked with were very bright men, very educated, very good in what they did. And so the team that I was working with, we were validating a ceiling station, and the range, the heat range of the ceiling station was anywhere from 100 degrees to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So it got very hot, got very hot. And uh, we had it up there on the display. You could see it, 400, we were testing it at 450 degrees, very clearly displayed. Uh, we had to remove the uh, safety shield so we could ha- gain access uh, to the station, so we could put probes on it and things like that. And we had large signs everywhere that said, caution, extreme temperature, do not touch, okay? So it was all there. Well, one of, an, uh, one of the engineers who wasn't associated with the study, he came on the line because he wanted to see the new equipment. And so he stood there before that station. He saw the readout, 450 degrees. He saw all the signs, do not touch, extremely hot. And I stood there and I watched this highly educated man read the sign, look at the station, look at the readout, look at the station, and I could see the wheels turning in his head. And before I could say anything or stop him, he took his thumb and he reached down and he planted his thumb right on that 450 degree ceiling station. And I am not kidding. You could hear the as he pulled his thumb off and left behind his thumbprint on that station. And I watched that thumbprint just turn to ash. A highly educated man just did a very ignorant thing. And the point of this, God has provided the evidence. 
for man to believe in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for him on the cross. But instead of believing on Jesus for their salvation, they choose to remain ignorant and they're going to get burnt. Right? That's what I mean about don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. So that's the scenario. So let's move on to the savings sayings because I want to get this finished. Ha ha, everybody says. Now, according to the Gospels, you didn't need to agree with that, Sherry. There are seven sayings of Jesus. Seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross of Calvary. We've already looked at the first saying here in Luke 23:34, where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So, in all, there are seven sayings, and I'm not going to preach on the seven sayings. I don't have the time. I think that would be a good Easter sermon or maybe a, a lesson for the Lord's Supper. But, uh, and I'm going to try to limit myself to what Luke has recorded. But I do want to say a few things about the seven sayings. Things that I've learned from others that I'd like to pass on to you. First of all, uh, what are the seven sayings? What are the seven sayings? Uh, So I'm going to give you the seven sayings, so at least you'll have them. Uh, And those who take notes, you can jot down real quick, at least the references. Uh, The first saying is found right here in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. The second saying is found in Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says to the thief, Verily I I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's number two. John 19.27 is when he gives his mother into the care of his disciple John. Behold thy mother. John 19.27. Then you've got Matthew 27.46 where he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then uh, number five is found in John 19.28 where Jesus says, I thirst. Then John 19.30 Uh, when after he received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And then here in Luke 23, 46, uh, the last thing that he says is, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So those are the seven sayings of Jesus. Um, First three sayings, I believe, were said during the first three hours of his crucifixion, so from nine to noon. When it was still daylight. And then the last four sayings occurred in the time of darkness from noon to 3 p.m. In fact, I believe the last four sayings uh, were said within that 3 p.m. hour in quick succession. In quick succession. So that means from noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus said nothing. He was absolutely silent as he suffered on the cross. As he struggled there on the cross. So from noon to 3 o'clock, he didn't say a word. Not a word. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now consider the scene. Noon, the lights go out. The sun is darkened. 
From noon to three o'clock, Jesus doesn't say a word. Not a word. And then on the ninth hour at three o'clock, I mentioned this before, that's when they offered the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice. That's when they offered the lamb on the altar for the second time in the day in the temple. Psalms 118.27 says, God is the Lord which hath showed us light, bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. No sound comes from the lamb as it's being bound on the altar. The only time it cries out is when the knife is applied and it feels the pain of death. That's when Jesus cried out. That third hour. When the knife of death was applied. Just like that lamb. Just like that lamb. We consider these seven sayings. Uh, The first three sayings, praying for the Father's forgiveness, uh, promising the repentant sinner about paradise, and providing his mother into the care of his disciple John. In the first three sayings, we see Christ's thoughtfulness for others. Christ's thoughtfulness for others. With the middle saying, cried out at three o'clock, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, This speaks of his great travail. As he who knew no sin became sin for us and perished on the cross so that we might have deliverance. You see, sin separates us from God. So when Jesus was on that cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the very first time since eternity past and eternity future, for the very first time, that fellowship between God the Son and God the Father was broken as he became the sin offering. That's kind of sobering. It's kind of sobering. Uh, his final sayings were triumphs over sin and death. The first, fourth, and final saying, he addresses the Father. The first, second, and third saying relates to those around him. The fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh saying relate to himself. Again, Jesus putting others before himself. Putting others before himself. And that's the way it is in Luke's gospel. We can see his consideration in praying for the forgiveness of those who are crucifying him. We see his promise to the repentant thief on the cross concerning paradise. And then in Luke, the last thing that we hear from Jesus is he commends his spirit into the Father's hands, thus completing the work of redemption on on our behalf. Woohoo! I'm going to get it done. Then we have the superscription, the last part. What Pilate had put on, on the cross. Luke 23:38 says, and a superscription was also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the King of the Jews. Again, you know, a, a detail in the scriptures that uh, probably the majority of people probably just read right over probably take no consider I I mean 
I have. You know, you know what's the big deal? So he wrote this. And a lot of folks, you know, they focus on uh, the Jews, uh, you know, saying, no, don't write he's the king of the Jews. You know, that's, that's where a lot of people focus on. But have you ever considered why Pilate wrote it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin? Well, in my, uh, I had to, I was asked to teach on the life of Christ in HBI. So I was studying this out, and I got to thinking about this. Okay, what is going on here? What is really going on here? So this is what I found. I'm not going to go into the big, long deal that I do with HBI. So I'll give you the, what is it, cliff notes? I'll give you the cliff notes. You know, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, he wrote a remarkable statement. He said in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of the time was come... God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. So here the Apostle Paul is looking at the vast horizon of God's great plan of redemption and he sees that God sent Jesus at the exact right moment in history. Because that's just the way God is. (laughs) Right? And so... When Christ came, it was at a pivotal, crucial point in the history of the world. Now, if you're a Gentile historian, you don't look at it that way. You're not concerned about such things. But spiritually, it was a pivotal point in the history of the world. It was at this time that Israel seemed the furthest from God, even though she was full of rules and regulations, ceremony. Uh, the, the Gentile world was plunged into the depths of idolatry, superstition. The Romans who were in charge, they were cynical, cruel. So the living word came at, at that right time. And so what Pilate wrote up here is in the three areas that God had prepared the world to receive the word Hebrew, Greek and Latin Jews, Greeks and the Romans and those three regions those three areas was in religion in culture and in government and that's what we have right here we have religion with the Jews we have the culture with the Greeks and then we have the law government with the Romans so I, 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 throw, I threw that up there just for your uh, perusal. But to go down through this, you know, with the Jews, we have religion. We have the oracles, right? All of those prophecies, the word of God. From the Jews, we have salvation, redemption from sin through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said to the woman by the well in John chapter 4, for salvation is of the Jews. We have prophecy. We've looked at that in a little bit. We have the scriptures that were entrusted to the Jews. Jerusalem, which is really the spiritual center of the world. It even is so today. It even is so today. But the problem here with this religion is it fell into legalism and ceremony and they were hypocritical in their relationship to God. With the Greeks, we had culture. Alexander the Great, when he came on the scene, he flipped the world on its head. 
he was a major game changer. Major game changer. Brought about a language that covered uh, that empire. It was Greek that God chose to use to inspire the New Testament in because Greek is such a precise language, perfect language. They brought in philosophy and schools of learning. We read about the Apostle Paul going into their schools. Uh, Athens was a center of culture, which it was. Athens had a great impact upon, upon world culture. It still does today. A lot of what we take for granted comes from the Athenian influence. Uh, but they fell into mysticism, mysticism and asceticism, and they were superstitious. Remember when Paul went to Mars Hill? And he says, you guys have all these idols. You guys are too superstitious. Too superstitious. Then we have Latin with the Romans. We've got jurisprudence. A lot of our laws are based off of Roman jurisprudence. We've got the government. They brought about a Pax Romana, a peace. Um, of course, peace by the sword. But it was a peace. Uh, they, had, they took the road system that the Greeks started and they improved upon it. They brought in the politics, the power. Rome was the center of power at the time. Uh, these roads were used by the Apostle Paul and the other apostles to get the gospel out. But they fell into skepticism and pragmatism and became a cynical people. Remember what Pontius Pilate said to Jesus? What is truth? What is truth? So Jesus Christ came at that critical time in human history. Judaism was a religion used to bring the word into being. Greece unified the language of the world so that the world would be so that the word of God would be accessible for all to read. And Romans Rome's government and military brought peace and stability in the land so the apostles and the disciples could travel and proclaim the word of God throughout the empire which is exactly what they did they turned the world upside down so Jesus came at that crucial time in history in his first advent when he comes again it's going to be at another crucial time in world's history and I believe that all three of these things will be in play religion culture and power who's going to be the uh, power as far as the antichrist is concerned the revised Roman empire there's going to be a religion involved the great harlot and there's also going to be a culture involved the culture that the antichrist is going to try to create So at that crucial time in history in the future, Jesus Christ will once again return. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche is credited with saying the the devil is in the details. And he may be right as far as things that are full of evil. But as sharp as the devil is, he's not involved in the details like Almighty God is involved in. 
Christ coming the first time was at an ideal time in history. Christ coming the second time will also be at an ideal time in history. So, with all that said, mankind is without excuse. Because God has clearly given them enough to believe on the Son of God. But they choose to remain in their ignorance. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that uh, we have someone come and talk to us and share with us the gospel. And that, Father in heaven, we did believe unto salvation. Now I pray for all of those that we talk to, that we share the gospel with. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would help them to see beyond the darkness of their ignorance. And that, Lord God in heaven, that they would receive the light of your truth in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.